Hey marketers, if you want to get the latest news, trends, and insights in marketing, advertising, and tech, check out the Adweek Podcast Network. Learn from leading voices across media and marketing with original shows like Yeah, That's Probably an Ad, Marketing Vanguard, and Tech Magic with Kathy Hackle. Start listening now by searching Adweek wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com spoken today. Ready to pop the question and take advantage of 30% off? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com to get 30% off. Select lab-grown diamonds. That's BlueNile.com for 30% off lab-grown diamonds. BlueNile.com. At the end of the day, marketers want to sell things. Like this is not a rocket science business. They want to sell more products to more customers. And if we can't prove that we can do that, even if something is awesome and cool and sexy and flashy and fun, the nose budgets will move somewhere else if something else gets cooler. And what really retains them is ROI. Welcome to the Business of Marketing, brought to you by Adweek and SAP. The Business of Marketing is where you get to hear from business leaders and innovators on how CMOs work collaboratively with their C-suite partners to drive business transformation. So, for anyone who is a CMO or aspiring to join the C-suite, this podcast will provide you with a deep dive into how to create cross-functional teams, establish clear internal communications, invest in customer centricity, drive technology innovation, and develop talent for the future. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy the show and have a wonderful day. Welcome to the Business of Marketing, presented to you by SAP. I'm Toby Daniels, and I'm the Chief Innovation Officer here at Adweek. On this week's episode, we have Jeremy Gorman, who is the Chief Business Officer at Snap. Before Jeremy joined the company in 2018, Snap's stock was down and a number of senior leaders had recently left. It seemed as if the platform was waning and losing significance. Around this time, Snap's CEO, Evan Spiegel, made a commitment to bring on a number of important senior leaders to help bring the company back from irrelevancy. This is where our guest comes in. Over the past three years, Jeremy has helped to bring Snap stock from $5 to $70, and they recently posted their best quarter in four years, with revenues up 116%. With prior roles at both Amazon and Yahoo, Jeremy was the perfect choice to help rejuvenate Snap, and throughout each of these companies, she has excelled in both blending brand storytelling with performance, 
and working with product teams to build advertising services that meet the needs and demands of their advertisers. During our conversation, we talked about her incredible career, including her time at Amazon, where she built their advertising business and how she helped to restructure Snap's sales organization. We also dive deep into Snap's product and how they continue to differentiate the user experience on the platform, their big investment into AR, and her thoughts on the next frontier for marketers. In addition to my conversation with Jeremy and throughout season two of the podcast, we will be spotlighting a number of different startups who have participated in SAP.io's Foundries program. During this episode, you're going to hear from Brian Dye, founder and CEO of Divergent, a technology platform that allows companies to fulfill data requests at scale by matching to the best suited vetted candidates. Learn how they are leveraging technology to lower the barrier for candidates to get the same training virtually as they would get anywhere else in the world. As always, thank you for listening and please enjoy my conversation with Jeremy Gorman. Jeremy, thanks so much for joining the podcast. It is my pleasure. I'm so excited to be here. So I've been very much looking forward to this conversation ever since we first started talking to you and your teams earlier this year. And of course, since your fantastic keynote at Social Media Week New York back in May. So we're definitely going to cover a lot of ground over the course of this conversation. There's clearly a ton for us to dig into. But what I'd like to start with is focusing on the last three years, the time that you have been with Snap. Much has been written about where the organization was when you first joined, right? The stock was down and a number of senior leaders had recently left. And I remember at the time, it sort of felt that the platform itself, the product perhaps, was starting to wane and, and even lose significance among a lot of your core users, whether this is true or not. This is just the, the observations I think that we were sort of looking at and focusing on at the time. And it was also around this time, I think, that Evan made some pretty significant commitments to the idea of bringing on some really important senior leaders, including yourself. And since then, over the past three years, the stock has gone from five bucks to 70. And you've just posted your best quarter in four years with revenues up 116% year over year. And just as impressive has been all of the anecdotal feedback that we hear from advertisers with one, I believe recently been quoted as saying that their campaigns are seeing 5x returns as compared to the other platforms. So First of all, congrats, obviously, huge amounts of success. And second, let's unpack all of this. Let's help our listeners understand what led to all of this incredible success, what led to all of this revenue growth and the ROI that you're delivering for your advertisers. So take us back to the beginning of when you joined Snap. Okay. What did the organization look like then? And then how did you restructure things in the early days? I got to Snap in early November of 2018, and you're right, it had been coming off a bit of a tumultuous time, although, you know, our community, they were really engaged largely the whole time, which was exciting to see. So as I was going through the interview process and kind of unpacking that myself, the external narrative relative to the internal narrative, when I met everybody, when I met Evan, when I met the team, I realized that 
fundamentals were still very much here. And then there was a bit more of a kind of press narrative or than reality in some cases. And so I was comfortable making the jump over to Snap, just given everything that had been going on in, inside the company, some really important and hard decisions that they had made prior to my my arrival, such as moving everything into the auction format, which we were crushing it on takeovers when they made you know, AR takeovers for a single day, when they made that decision, which is hard and dropped CPMs and all these kinds of things, but it's the way of the future. So I was really impressed by some of that decision-making, decided to come to the company and the sales organization was they were structured regionally. And so it was not only internationally, but country by country, but then here in the United States, it was just East, West and Central region. And in my experience, that is fine for a good way to start a company in terms of access to customers, being able to get to meetings quickly, et cetera. But as you get bigger and you scale, the expectation of the sales team is that they will be categorical experts, not that the same person has Sprint and McDonald's because they're both based in the mid Midwest. It doesn't really service the customers in the way that we needed to as we got bigger. And so I entered with this 90 day thing in mind, as everybody does comes in, I'm just going to listen for the first 90 days. <laughs> and then it was kind of like day three, where I thought, you know what, I actually think this company uh, could really benefit from the vertical structure. So we did that really, really quickly. Uh, we executed it all and rolled it out in early 2019. So just actually January of 2019, that's how fast it was. And we broke into different categories, independent of regions. So we have, you know, retail tech, auto, entertainment, all, all of the ones that you would think, restaurants, et cetera. And um, that has been really successful for the team. I love the part where we've actually done this largely with the team that was here already with leaders like Luke Callis, for instance, and uh, Claire Velotti and our international team. We've, of course, brought in some other people as well. But it was really just a restructuring so that we could be deep experts in the categories that we serve. And I think that's particularly important because you have to understand the macro in order to solve business needs. So for instance, right now in the automotive sector, I think everybody's heard about the chip shortage, but what does that mean? What does the chip, chip shortage mean? How is that impacting cars? How's that impacting car sales? and so on and so forth. And then, uh, so knowing that on a vertical basis and being able to solve customer needs was really important. So we did that really quickly. It was successful really quickly, which was great. Also scary <laughs> when we did it, but, and then we rolled it out internationally as well over the course of the next two quarters. And so that's now how we're structured globally and it's worked out great. I, I want to unpack that a little bit because I, I love to get in the weeds on this sort of stuff. And, and I'm super interested to know the point at which you sort of implemented this change how did you then also help your team and the individual salespeople adjust to this change? Going from something geographic where you are largely a generalist to a vertically specific strategy where you have to like then acquire and develop that deep understanding and expertise within that vertical is a pretty big jump for some people. So how did you help your team navigate through that? Uh, it was a big change, uh, particularly, I think, and I've been doing this 22 years now, not to age myself, but you get really married to your clients. You love both Sprint and McDonald's, and you don't want to have to choose whether or not you're a telco person or a restaurants person, but we forced that choice. In those kinds of instances, we actually gave the account executive the choice to say like, which, you know, you're doing a great job with these two customers, but we need you to choose one segment. 
I think giving them choice, full transparency of what was happening really helped. So we had daily updates. We had all hands every single week. It's where I could answer questions. A couple of the people on our operations teams have consulting backgrounds, one from Accenture, one from BCG, and we just all work together really closely around change management. But I do think there were a couple of promises up front that I made. One was nobody's going to lose their job and nobody's going to get demoted. I promise. And that I think quelled a lot of the fears. And then again, the second thing being that choice. So if people were working on multiple verticals, they chose which one they wanted to go with. And I think that helped get people pretty comfortable with it, but it was definitely challenging. An area that I don't think I did particularly well, but we've since rectified is that we didn't have category training in place at the same time. So right. I'll just keep using the same example of Sprint and McDonald's. Let's say the person chose McDonald's. We didn't then say, okay, and here's all the depth of engagement that you need to know about the franchise models and who puts in the national budgets. And here's what challenges are they're facing with wage increases, et cetera. Since then, we've done that. We built a sales enablement team that didn't exist uh, when I got here. And they go really deep on training vertical by vertical in partnership with our business marketing team and our marketing science team on data by vertical. And we do the training, but we didn't do that right away, which if I had a time machine, I would go back and make that part and parcel of the original reorg. Um, right. I was going to say, if you were to do it again, you would sort of introduce the, the decision to go vertical and combine that with the training and the sales enablement kind of piece so that in lockstep, the salespeople can move forward with probably greater confidence. Yeah. And, and I think if the whole point was for us to be deep with our customers and to service them in terms of their business transformation and not just sling banners, as I say, um, then I think we, we owed them better in terms of the expertise that we were giving at the beginning. We rectified it pretty quickly, but yes, right. I would have done that at the same time because somebody just saying, okay, I choose travel. Well, that doesn't make you an expert on travel when you used to have 30 clients cross category. Right, so that right. would have been, that would be something I would do differently, but we did notice it pretty quickly and rectified it. And, and not to spend too much time on this, but I'm just curious when you look for, when you're looking at whether something is working or not, what are those sort of very early signals that you're paying particular close attention to, to give you that sense of, okay, this is working and we need to A, continue, but even perhaps like double down the strategy, particularly as you rolled it out internationally. So I'm a big inputs person versus an outputs person. So obviously at the end of the day, I and the team are all measured on revenue outputs, but I think looking at that as the only measure is a mistake in terms of ascertaining whether or not something is successful. So we focused on certain inputs like numbers of meetings, the level of meeting that we were having, are we moving from an AMD, for instance, to a C-level conversation? Are we getting more meetings? Are we getting more RFPs? So we started systematically measuring these leading indicators for lack of better terms of whether or not this was working. So it would before you wouldn't, you'd be able to say, okay, person a got 30 RFPs. Well, they might've gotten 30 RFPs from one customer, which is not as good as getting 30 RFPs from a litany of customers. So we mapped basically the entire advertising ecosystem and said, where do we fit knowing that our audience is 90% of 13 to 24 year olds in the United States and 75% of 13 to 34 year olds. 
we are probably not for every single brand, but we went to Pathmatics, we went to all these resources and basically mapped out every single brand in the world and said, do we have an entitlement here? Not my favorite word, but do we have a reason for this customer to advertise with us? If so, great. And then we measured against those things. Are they taking your calls? Are they taking your meetings? What level is the meeting? Did you get an RFP after the meeting? If so, how many days? What's your success rate on closing the RFP pitches versus close rate, time to close? Do they then spend more money in the auction? Meaning, let's say they originally commit to $100,000 and then in time they add more budget to the system. That's an indication that they're getting the ROI that they wanted. And so we measure all of those things to really see where the success is, the revenue being what kind of spits out the machine at the end. And that that's what how we were able to measure the success. And we saw that right away, that the fact that we had these people that were becoming experts, particularly once we trained them properly, they were getting more meetings, they were getting more RFPs. We had that mapping and it was like, okay, check. We work with this brand, check with, we work with this brand. And we had what we called a lookalike strategy which was um, actually introduced by not me, but um, somebody else who's worked here for a long time. And it's an awesome strategy. Luke, I mentioned him earlier, which is, okay, if we work for Mars and Hershey, but we're not yet working with Nestle or Mondelez, those need to be two of our top customers that we go after because we already know that we can deliver ROI in this segment. And so then we made those two customers top priority, for instance. So that's how we measure today. That's how we started measuring then and how we measure now. Let's take a break from my conversation with Jeremy and hear from Brian Dye, founder and CEO of Divergent. My name is Byron. I am the co-founder and CEO of Divergent, and we're part of the 2019 New York City SAPIO cohort. Divergent is a technology platform that allows companies to fulfill data jobs and data-related requests by matching to the best suited workforce of adults on the autism spectrum. Our software enables autism talent to enter into the remote and the in-person workforce at scale for the very first time. For many founders who are in this space, the genesis of this idea was deeply personal. Uh, I have a brother, Brandon, uh, who is 21 years old and is a self-advocate in the autism community. And he's someone that looks at opportunities for work and feels like they're sometimes out of reach. Much of that is because the connection between the education and schooling systems for autism in the US are disconnected from the employers who are trying to tap into this talent pool. What we'd like to do is become the bridge between these two worlds, using technology to be able to source, assess, upskill, and then match great candidates to companies who can really benefit from their potential. As we start to come out of COVID, What we have found is that the technology that we've built to deliver training and work opportunities virtually have allowed us to lower the barrier for candidates to get the same kind of training that they would expect to receive from some of the highest caliber organizations in the world. We are providing them the opportunity to get coursework and try out different careers from the comforts and safety of their homes and also allow employers to start to interact and learn about this community virtually through our webinars and our technology outreach series. 
We see the biggest driver for growth being the transformation of awareness into action. We're already beginning to see that our growth is driven by companies who are very receptive to finding talent that is traditionally overlooked, uh, but has very high potential. We have found that startups and small businesses have really stepped up to the plate. And what we're expecting to see is that additional drivers of growth are going to come from the validation that these smaller companies have been able to build to be able to pull in the mid-market and larger enterprises who are looking for data points around this. For more information about Divergent, you can visit us at our website at www.divergent.com. That's D-A-I-V-E-R-G-E-N-T. Or you can reach out to us at hello at Divergent.com. Thanks to Brian for providing us a peek into their business and the work that they have been doing with SAP.io. Interested in joining the SAP.io Foundries program? Visit sap.io for more information. And now, back to our conversation with Jeremy Gorman, Chief Business Officer at Snap. Let's talk about some of the other strategies that you brought to Snap in those early days. Obviously, you cut your teeth at Yahoo, particularly during a period where they were still having a, a ton of success, right? Then you spent six years at Amazon building their advertising sales business. What did you bring from these experiences that you were able to apply to Snap's business? Well, if this weren't a tool podcast, I would hug you for thinking that my career started in 2007 at Yahoo, but I started working in digital advertising in 1999. So I have a whole other teeth cutting experience. I was an early employee at monster.com as well. And I was there almost I guess six and a half years as well before Yahoo. So I've had the opportunity to work at sort of the leader in each of their respective spaces at the time in which they were the leader, if that makes sense. And then Mm -hmm. almost the arc really in each of those. So Monster being massive, biggest job search site in the world, not even close. And then you know, kind of fell off a little bit. And then Yahoo, when I got there to your point, was the biggest website in the world. We were selling million dollar homepages, 365 days a year. Money was raining from the sky and falling into the buckets from the clients. And it was an amazing experience. But I also was there during the time where there were five CEOs. And so I got to see the arc at both of those places. And I think that there are a couple of lessons that I've learned. So the first is You always have to keep innovating in order to stay on top. And and this is a good Bezosism as well, which is you have to disrupt yourself or somebody else is going to do it for you. And Mm -hmm. so learning that at both Monster and Yahoo in real time was super interesting. I also makes me very humble and, and, and I hope to instill that in my teams, which is, yes, like we are doing very well right now at Snap, 116% year over year growth. That's awesome. The audience is growing. Everything looks rosy, but that stuff can turn on a dime. And I never want to be, and I never want my team to be the type of team that we're like, we're winning. So let's just sit there and celebrate. It's no, we're winning. So let's watch our backs. Right. And those lessons I thought were really valuable. And then at Amazon, you can imagine that the company that can get you a package in an hour is pretty darn good at measuring inputs, as I just shared earlier. And so I learned a lot of that there, like the operational rigor that we put into the business here at Snap was very Amazonian, measuring inputs directly, looking at leading indicators to see what your future success is going to look like, et cetera. They are just 
entirely mechanistic about everything that they do. It's pretty impressive. I always call it an MBA every day at Amazon. And that was a really great experience to learn how to measure on things that aren't just outputs. One of the things that I think you did at Yahoo, and I think also you seem to have applied with great success at Amazon and now, of course, Snap, is this idea of blending brand and storytelling together with performance, particularly, obviously, as you are servicing your customers. Another thing I think also that you've been credited with is being really good at listening to the market and working with your product teams to build advertising services and products that meet the needs and demands of advertisers in the most effective ways. So talk about why each of these are important to you and also to the recent growth of Snap's advertising business. I think the brand and performance thing is actually, in my opinion, the most important thing that a leader can instill in a sales team or in a company is that at the end of the day, marketers want to sell things like this is not a rocket science business. They want to sell more products to more customers. And if we can't prove that we can do that, even if something is awesome and cool and sexy and flashy and fun. And, you know, Snap has so much in that vein. Then those budgets will move somewhere else if something else gets cooler. And what really retains them is ROI. And so I've always believed that you don't just do flashy for flashy sake. It's, and we get, you get a lot of RFPs that are like, that start with, you know, I want to do a never been done before. I want something that's press worthy. And I love that stuff too. I'm like, One of the things of which I'm most proud is having worked on the Minions Boxes campaign, for instance, at at Amazon, which was a never been done before in partnership with Universal. But there had to be a component to it that was performance, meaning scan the box, like how are people interacting with it? How How many people kept it, like took pictures of it, shared it, and so on. And other than that, I think you don't have anything. Like you just have a billboard and not that billboards are bad. I like outdoor too, but in digital, you can be accountable. So you should be accountable. So anything cool should have a DR component to it, or at the very least, the ability to prove efficacy of some kind to move product or to increase brand awareness or whatever it is, but measurability being really important. And so that's always been really important. And then I think on the product side, this stuff can't get done without product and engineering, but there's salespeople are out there that you have to have amazing salespeople. And we do, I've been fortunate to work with so many of them over 20 years, but if you don't fully believe in the product that you're selling, first of all, your job kind of stinks. And secondly, your customers can tell that you're not telling them the truth. And so in order to walk out of the door with firm conviction that we are selling the most performant, the best product, you have to deeply understand what that product is, why it was developed the way that it was, and work with product and engineering to understand what can and can't be tweaked, how easy or hard something is. I think it's a habit of of salespeople that can come in and just say, well, the product's broken, but that's not good enough. You have to be able to articulate what specifically is broken or not working for your customer and really listen and not overpromise because that happens a lot too. And so I consider at Snap and actually it's it's very proven on my app if you could see it now is the my best friends on Snap are our head of monetization product and our head of monetization engineer. <laughs> it's my uh, <laughs> That's yeah, great. Your const, constant conversation about a lot of things, you know, and then oh. Developing those friendships and and trust is super important as well. 
you know, if they, if I'm begging them to build something and they build it, I have to sell it. Right. Otherwise I don't get to beg again. You sort of partly answered my next question, which is we, we have a ton of people on this podcast. And in fact, we've had some just fascinating conversations with C-suite leaders around collaboration within the C-suite and obviously why it's so important. And I was going to ask you, like, how do you foster that within Snap's business? How do you foster and, and even facilitate cross-functional collaboration across the entire C-suite and throughout the kind of the leadership um, of the organization? I mean, part of the answer to that question is on, on the actual product itself and through Snap, but I'm curious, what are some of the other ways that you have achieved that? I will say with all of the bias in the world, but telling the truth, I think that we have the the coolest C-suite in the business. The way that we all work together, the way we're all friends. We didn't get to see each other for a year like everybody else. And then we had a, a get together a couple months ago after we were all vaccinated. And you should have seen like the hugs and the smiles. Like we are literally friends. And I think that comes from the values of the company here, um, which are super simple. It's kind, smart, and creative. Mm -hmm. And I think those can sound a little bit like platitudes and means being nice or of course we're a creative platform because our canvas is so remarkable but it doesn't when you get under the nitty-gritty of it I'll, I'll start with kind or actually kind of use kind as the example here being kind doesn't necessarily just mean being nice at snap it means telling people the truth the analogy that i use on this is like the food in the teeth analogy which is if somebody has food in their teeth you oftentimes don't tell them because it'll embarrass them for the 30 seconds that they're embarrassed that they have food in their teeth. But it's actually unkind to not tell them the truth in that second, because then they're going to walk around with food in their teeth all day and not even know it. And that's kind of our mantra here, which is if somebody messes something up, if you need to deliver a hard message to either a peer or, or to somebody on your team, we do it. Like we tell them, we tell people the truth and it, really is rooted in kindness and trust. And that is huge and massively important at the company. And then everything is creative. So when I got here, I was like, I'm not creative at all. I am like, I can't draw a happy face hardly. And they were like, that's not what we mean. You can be creative by developing systems that didn't exist before. You can be creative by solving a problem a way that we hadn't thought about before. And I was like, oh good. Okay. Cause I can't play an instrument and I can't draw. So Lucky me that it's about systems, <laughs> but I think that it's really rooted in those values and Evan and Bobby, our co-founders, they really hold us accountable. We are measured on the way that we show up for values. So there's a performance component of your work, what you've delivered or of your review. And then there is a component that is literally measured on how do you show up as it pertains to kind, smart, and creative. And I've never seen a systematic indoctrination of values the way that they exist here. And I think that makes a huge difference. It, it does. And also there's something to be said for having only three values that you can actually remember and recount yes. and share <laughs> with other people and advocate for because it's not stapled to the office wall and written in such kind of abstract terms that no one will actually remember. I, I definitely praise you for that. It's fantastic. Let's switch gears a little bit. I want to talk about the product. And in particular, I want to talk about how you continue to differentiate the user experience on the platform. Obviously, Snap in recent years has really pioneered AR, right? Both as a tool that 
creates a like rich and highly engaging experience for users, but also is something that can actually drive business growth for your advertisers, especially in the e-commerce space. So talk about why Snap made such a big investment into AR and why it has become such an important part of the Snapchat experience. Yeah, it was certainly the bet long before I got here. And I think it's the right one. We really believe that it represents the next major shift in computing. If I look back over my lifetime, there have been these sort of monumental shifts in, in decades where it's okay, first there's the personal computer, and then there's the laptop, and then there's the mobile phone, and and then there's the smartphone. And now we really believe that AR is the next one that proves out in the numbers. I think what is interesting is that when you talk to somebody in Gen Z, for instance, I don't think they're using AR. I don't think they're like, oh yeah, I'm one of 200 million Snapchatters who use augmented reality every day. They don't think about it like that. It's just part of their every single day, whether it's a lens that they put on their face, whether it's augmenting a picture that they've taken with fun stickers or these kinds of things. It's just super normal and natural for them. And I think when you look at the world, the idea of augmented reality, the key word really being augmented, which is that it's computing overlaid on the world. It's not a it's not a separate world. It's not, I always think it's funny when people say like, I'm going to go to the internet, like it's some separate place, but it's not, it's part and parcel of our world and augmented reality being the same. And we're going to continue building towards that future that really is transforming computing by overlaying it on the real world that you engage with around you. It's, it's massive. There are, you know, over, or there are about 5 billion, give or take photos and videos created in our camera every single day. As I mentioned, 200 million people engage with AR every day. The numbers are insane. And so when we look at it from a business perspective, we believe that we are building the next best showroom and COVID really accelerated those trends because you couldn't go to a physical showroom. So if you wanted to show the latest Jordan sneaker, if you wanted to show your Sally Hansen nail polish colors, if you wanted to drop the newest Louis Vuitton bag, you had to do it in augmented reality. And so it really accelerated those trends. And like we talked about a little bit, a little bit ago, that is rooted in performance is that, yes, this is awesome stuff. It's so cool to be able to walk into a virtual Lego store, but then you have to be able to swipe up and buy the product or try on the American Eagle SKUs for back to school shopping, which is a live experience right now. And you have to be able to go back to the advertiser and say, this worked. We sold more product because you built it in augmented reality. And that's how people want to experience the world. So we're really leveraging the long-term investments that we've made in augmented reality and in specific in personalization. And it's very early in the adoption of AR for brands, but they're getting there and it's really fun. And I, I remember back to, I can't believe how old I keep making myself sound here, but when there didn't used to be mobile budgets. There didn't used to be social budgets. There didn't used to be e-commerce budgets. Like when I started at Amazon, there was no e-commerce budget at most brands in the world in 2012. And now that sounds bananas to not have an e-commerce budget. And I think that's where we are right now with augmented reality is that the budgets don't totally exist. They tend to exist in more innovation buckets instead of augmented reality buckets. But in 10 years from now, It'll be like, wait, what do you mean you didn't have a camera strategy? What do you mean you didn't have an augmented reality strategy? Right. I look at my camera roll now, out even the outside of Snapchat, I have 30 something thousand pictures saved in my camera roll and my life isn't that interesting. 
like cameras are everybody's day to day. And, and I think that everybody having this long-term vision for augmented reality and engaging in the camera is a must do. And we're right there at the, at the starting line. First of all, I, I just want to say, I think you and I entered into the professional arena around the same time. Okay, good. I feel uh, so, <laughs> Well, yeah, in 1990,000, uh, I was in London and basically joined and ended up running a, a web design and development company for almost seven years. The 1.0 world and days of the internet is a period of time I'll always look back on very fondly. But but the reason why I sort of bring this up is because you keep talking about how it sort of potentially ages you. And I want to just reframe it, if you don't mind, because the key thing is we're probably Gen Xers, right? We sort of built the internet and we've been through one, two, and now entering into the metaverse, which can be sort of talked about or described as kind of web three. And we've been right actually at the kind of front lines of this now for 20 plus years. So that doesn't make us old. It makes us awesome. So I just want to that's, kind of- Okay, I, I'll take it. I'm going <laughs> to get that on a t-shirt. It doesn't make me old. It makes me awesome. I'm not old. I'm awesome is, is definitely a good t-shirt slogan for sure. Okay, right, so we'll have those made and we can wear them when we see each other. <laughs> I love it. So you brought up obviously what AR sort of represents for your customers. And, and I want to sort of dig in a little bit more on that. I'd love for you to provide some examples of how your customers and how advertisers on the platform are starting to leverage these tools. And, and what does success look like? Because I can only imagine how the conversation starts out, right? Talking to them about something that feels kind of abstract or even talking to advertisers about something that they might not have personally used or might not be personally familiar with themselves. So how do you start those conversations? Give us some examples of, of where advertiser has success and talk about the ways in which that success is currently being measured. Absolutely. You are catching me on a very good day, but for the listeners at home, we had our earnings call just last Thursday. So I have memorized everything that I needed to potentially answer for the analysts. So I have a lot of these top of mind. So good, good timing before they fly out of my brain only to be replaced by an 80s song or something. But we have, there are a couple of examples that have been really amazing lately. American Eagle, I mentioned just briefly, but the, to be specific, they did a virtual holiday pop-up store in 2020 and the Snapchat community could engage with each of their SKUs in AR and that generated $2 million in incremental sales just from that virtual pop-up experience. They continue to lean into Snapchat AR and their whole back to school campaign is also in AR and they're de debuting a try on experience calling it dress yourself, which is really cool. And so it's not only that they try it on, but people can buy it from the experience. We just had a beta program with over 30 brands across a lot of different verticals, beauty, auto, et cetera. And our community tried on products or parked a car in their driveway or whatever it may be over 250 million times. And we just did it with 30 brands to try it and measure it. Champs Sports is another good example. They used a multi-product approach, which is what we really recommend is not only AR, but then putting some performance on the back end of it. So for instance, if somebody engages in AR, then you build a retargeting pool and then snap ads are highly performant and deliver in the auction, et cetera. But they, Champs, drove a 32% increase in return on ad spend with that campaign. We did a Dior one. So it's funny because the brands are all over, like it's super high-end, very luxury. And then also just day-to-day, -day, I want to sell product brands, but the Dior AR lens, had a six, about a 6% return on ad spend, a little, a little over 6%. 
Um, Smile Direct is a really interesting one. They have leaned in with us hugely because as you can imagine, if you can see your future smile after your Smile Direct experience in augmented reality, it's very compelling. They're picking the ad, they're putting it on their face, they're picturing them their future state selves. And they used our goal-based bidding product for augmented reality. And the augmented reality experience drove 49% of the Snap customer leads and was the most effective ad unit that their business did compared to any other channel. And so that was really awesome. And then now we're kind of having always on AR strategy for them. So some of the, some brands just really lend to themselves to this. Lastly, Nike, there's one live right now that I love kind of in partnership with the Olympics is that they used AR lenses as part of their play new campaign to encourage our community to get active. And it's, you're kind of like trying out these new sports. It's skateboarding and all these kind of cool things that you may never have done before to encourage people to try new things in AR. So it really runs the gamut. But again, like we talked about, Yes, they are very cool branding things and you can put them in a PowerPoint presentation and show the C-suite how cool your activation was. But the at the end of the day, the impressive thing is the return on ad spend. And so we measure it methodically and it's working, they work. In a way, the sort of the use and adoption of these AR tools is one sort of piece of the equation a second obviously other conversations and the ways in which brands are activating using these tools but the third of course is this incredible community of AR creators that you've built how did this emerge and, and what does it represent particularly for the business of snap today I love this question our AR creators are just some huge part of our overall success. People love creating experiences and art and our whole Snap Partner Summit is actually very focused on our creator community, even more than our business community. And so if you've attended any of those, it's the world's biggest art museum. It feels like it's amazing. So uh, we have over 200,000 augmented reality creators around the world and they've made about 2 million lenses. So they're just constantly continuing to innovate, to utilize our tools, to build new amazing experiences for our Snapchatters. Just the, these community lenses by the AR creators have been viewed more than 2 trillion times. So imagine you're an artist and you can create this kind of amazing digital experience and you're reaching this kind of audience where you've been viewed two trillion times. It's pretty remarkable. And they are just so passionate, the community, the creators, they're so passionate and they're engaged. And we actually learn a lot from them. And I think this is really exciting in a global business is that we can't really sit in Santa Monica or where our AR headquarters are in different parts of the world and come up with something that's topical and relevant to every generation and every country and every part of the world at any given moment. And so the creators allow us to actually participate in the zeitgeist in a way that our full-time employees couldn't simply because we don't know every single thing that's cool in every single part of the world at any moment. And they create them. Uh, and we... We offer them free desktop software, which is called Lens Studio, so anyone can build their own AR lens. I have tried. I've gotten as far as being able to put antlers on my head and 80s headband. But if I can do it, anybody can do it. And so it's just really democratizing the creation of augmented reality. And we recently just now rolled out a new version of Lens Studio, and it includes new features 
like multi-person 3D body mesh, advanced cloth simulation so that people can use it for business purposes, true size technology for things like eyewear try-on, and then a new visual effects editor, which enables creators to build sophisticated lenses and not have to write any code, which is really perfect because creators and coders aren't necessarily always the same. So the more, the more open we can make these tools, the more creative, awesome experiences we're going to get. It's no surprise that you struggle to create your own lens if you can't even draw a smiley face. Jeremy. I mean, I really, okay, I can draw a smiley face, but I can't <laughs> carve a jack-o'-lantern. <laughs> so, like, on a piece of paper, I can draw a smiley face, but not in a pumpkin. It's just not, it's not my jam. <laughs> I can do amazing things with spreadsheets, though. So that's really, take take that one to the bank. It's super important. <laughs> well, as you said before, I think it's it's just perfectly okay to uh, apply creativity to the world of, of building spreadsheets um, yes yeah. systems are creative i have learned no I, i'm on board i i agree with you Let, let's just talk about the marketplace for a second so the creative marketplace which i think you officially rolled out early this year obviously is a key component part of this part of the business and this kind of like part of the equation so talk about that yeah, so that was rolled out at the Partner Summit that I just referenced. We launched the Creator Marketplace, and it allows creators to directly interact in our advertising ecosystem. So it allows brands to connect with these AR lens creators all over the world that don't work for Snap, that are just out creating cool things in the wilderness. So AR lens creators, brands can connect with lens developers, lens partners and eventually snap stars which are kind of our, our influencers to help evaluate their marketing presence on the platform so if you are a brand and you're trying to look for somebody who creates beautiful lenses about flowers for instance you can do those searches in real time and find people who've made the most beautiful botanical lenses in the world connect with them and hire them to build your lens for you which is really cool and then that just helps them the brands leverage the expertise of these creators what we announced was that it's now open for all businesses to partner with a select group of AR creators. And then in the future, so it's early days, and then in the future, it's going to expand to a full open marketplace that will include all of our Snap creators so that they can actually, you know, make money with their art or be connected with brands or get their message even more broadly spread because there's the power of advertising and marketing behind it. And so we're really excited because brands married up with creators to reach an audience of our size that are this engaged in augmented reality is kind of a trifecta of goodness. So we're really excited about that rollout. I love the trifecta of goodness as well. Another t-shirt slogan. All right. So I'm just going to say, I'm sure my comms team is like, we don't the trifecta <laughs> of goodness, really lady. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I feel good about it though. All right. So we, we talk a bunch at Adweek about the future of marketing, obviously. Uh, we've recently written quite a lot and about and also hosted numerous conversations on the metaverse and, and specifically like why the spatial internet is like the next frontier for marketers. So how do you look at this opportunity? Obviously, AR is a component part of the metaverse. But when you think about Snap's future and when you think about the product suite and you think about the services that you want to be providing to your customers, where does the metaverse fit into the way that you think about the future? An interesting question. Obviously, this term has been you know, used a lot more broadly lately. We have actually been innovating in this space for a really long time without 
calling it the metaverse. So we just we didn't put a label on it, but, but we've been innovating in this space for a really long time. We have a lot of components around these shared virtual experiences, bringing people together. So a combination of the Snap Map, for instance, which is a map that's unique to every single Snapchatter and connects them to their friends on the map. So it's not about directions. It's about if you think about the snap map, it's actually very cool. It takes a lot of the like boring conversation from texting away into a visual experience that I guess one could call the metaverse, but is really just a map connecting people. But like, where are you? What are you doing? Who are you with? When are you going to be home? All of that can be answered on the snap map in a really interactive fashion, utilizing Bitmoji, which we think is another huge part of this kind of future state of the world, which is that avatars are very clearly going to to be a part of it. And Bitmoji is a massive leader in that space. We're continuing to innovate there. Um, just released some 3D Bitmojis. Our games and, and Snap games are often played with you as your Bitmoji, play with friends. So each of these components have been a part of the metaverse for, for a long time, but we just didn't put a label on it to call it anything specific. But our platform really spans so many of these different different shared digital experiences and always have. So we can, we're just going to continue to focus on bridging the physical and digital worlds together. And I think we have a very natural place to play here and in areas where we've been innovating for a really long time without the fancy word. Well, yeah, that's it. We love fancy words here at Adweek. So, you know, yeah, I didn't mean your to... fancy word. I just meant it's become a new fancy word. <laughs> it, it has. And, and oftentimes the, the fancy words lag a little bit behind the actual innovation and the application of all the various different technologies that make it up. So let's switch gears one more time. Let's talk about you as a leader. So during these conversations on the business and marketing, we like to get to know our guests in terms of how they perceive themselves as leaders within their organizations and also what it means to be a modern and progressive leader in today's complex social, political, and economic landscape. As we know, the role of the leader has changed pretty significantly over the years and certainly even more significantly over the course of the last like 12 to 18 months. And so the skills that you need today were not even uh, in the C-suite toolkit, let's say 10 or so years ago. So the question is, what's in your toolkit, Jeremy? What skills have you had to learn as a leader, especially when we think about the past 18 months or so? Here's a toolkit. Nobody, nobody told me where it was, man. Um, you know I, that thing that you're dragging around with you all the time that sort of weighs you down? Yeah, that's called the leadership toolkit. My, my away suitcase that's packed for my last trip in March of 2020, that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I tend to think of it in two parts. So one is as a leader, what will never change? What will your colleagues, what will your teams, what will your bosses, what will your clients always? always want. So that's the first part. And when I think about what they always want in this, I'm not old, I'm awesome career. I've always really focused on everybody will always want honesty. Everybody will always want trust. Everybody will always want candor. Everybody will always want experts. Everybody will always want it to be treated with empathy and kindness. And I think something that I have found, and I feel very lucky to you know, have a career this long where I've been able to maintain this is I think people want a human being like that makes mistakes, admits when they make mistakes, tells stupid jokes. And is like, I invite people into my life. I have my own little 
internal broadcast snap channel and I take pictures and send videos of myself doing like really stupid things and like, like earnings call rituals where I'm, you know, dancing around to my favorite get hyped song before it. And like, so I think of it that way, which is like, people will always want to be led by a human being with a positive attitude. And those things don't change no matter what the world throws at us, no matter what pandemic, no matter what socioeconomic situation, those are always true. And I always try to stay true to them. And then there's the other part, which is a lot of things do change. And I think people expect you to have all the answers and I don't, I don't think anybody does, but I do my best to stay over-educated, I would say on contemporary issues, on macroeconomic factors, on geopolitical climate, on what might be coming around the corner in terms of politics, for instance, and how will that change not only our industry, but how will it change our lives and our world? And so I read, I, I get the you know, little update like everybody does on their phone about what amount of time you spend on different apps every week. And it's a horrifying amount of time when I look at how much time I spend on my phone. Snapchat's number one, which is great, but then everything else is news content. Some Twitter plus a highly curated Twitter feed just across not only our own industry, but just more broadly, Financial Times, Bloomberg. I'm just a voracious consumer of content. And I hope that I can bring that like different perspectives to any random thing that gets thrown at me. Don't try me though, because I might mess it up and that would be embarrassing on this podcast. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's really important to stay, to read both sides of issues, even the sides you don't believe in, just so that you can understand both points of view, have a point of view of your own, say, I don't know when you don't know, and then just continue to stay as informed as possible. You know, there is no manual for how to run a virtual team during a global pandemic. Like I was not alive in 1918, the last time this happened. And so we're all figuring it out together. And the best that I can do is learn from other leaders, have a lot of conversations, listen to a lot of podcasts like this one and read a ton to just make the best decisions that I can with the information that I have. And collect as much information as I can. So that's always been my, those have been my mantras. And and I love the what's never going to change part, because I think no matter what, if you get higher in an organization or lower in an organization, or you go from a company, the difference between Amazon and Snap is massive, but those things still didn't change. Everybody at Amazon wanted truth, trust, honesty, empathy. Everybody at SNAPS wants truth, trust, honesty, empathy. Um, And so it's easy to bring that toolkit from point A to point B because they're the same. They're just human. Uh, I love it. That's so fantastic, hugely inspirational. When you mentioned 1918, I thought you were going to age yourself yet again. (laughs) Thankfully, last time I was. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Well, I was around for the previous pandemic. And let me tell you. Okay, so one more quick question. As a leader and given the extraordinary career that you've had to date, what are some of the ways that you like to pay it forward? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Nobody's ever asked me that. That's so cool. A lot of different ways. A couple of things that I'm doing personally on, so I'm an investor in the Angel City soccer team. So the women's soccer team that's opening here in Los Angeles. 
And while this is not a charity, it is a team. It is a professional sports team. I played sports my whole life growing up. In particular, I played soccer. And when I was 17, I had to make this decision of basically like, do I want to go to a smaller school so I can actually play in college? Or do I want to go to the best academic institution that I can go to, even if I can't play soccer there? And I was 17 and I had to make that choice. And I love soccer. I was so passionate about it. And I decided to go to UCLA, which was a great academic institution, but their soccer team was way too good for me to be a part of it. So I just hang up the cleats. And so when I got the opportunity to invest in a professional women's soccer team in Los Angeles, I just was like overwhelmed with joy that I got to be a part of something that would never force somebody to make that choice again. And for me, it was an easy choice when I was 17 because it was like, well, there's nothing after college. So who cares? I'll just go the academic route. So I love that, although not a nonprofit. And then something else that I truly value is I've been very fortunate to have uh, a really amazing group of friends since college, uh, so 20 something years now, just kick-ass, badass women. Uh, I met them in my sorority house in college and we've all stayed friends since. And our sorority is no longer at UCLA and the, the house has been taken over by an organization called LA Room and Board, where they take homeless students and house them and feed them and get them through schools. So it's not just UCLA, but LA and surrounding schools. So this place where I lived at like the height of privilege in a sorority house, et cetera, and met the friends that have been my support system my whole life is now now a support system for the, a whole other group of people that need it so much more than I ever did. So I'm very actively involved in that organization, not only financially, but from a mentorship perspective, introducing them to everybody that I can. It's remarkable what they've been able to do. Um, the dropout rate of homeless students is very high, as you can imagine, and they're graduating about 80% of their students there. And it's so cool. Like I lived there and this is what they're doing now. And then I think in general, I try to make myself as available as I can to give open and honest advice to people just starting their careers. When people say like, how did you get to where you are? I want to do that too. I try to make myself available in the best degree that I can, although time, of course, being everybody's most precious commodity to help people like get here and also to encourage them that there is no specific roadmap. That's like, it's a career lattice, not a career ladder. And don't let one setback set you back. So I do all that. And then we are involved in a lot of cancer foundations, as well as some NF foundations that are uh, both really near and dear to our hearts because of family and friends. First of all, it's incredible. And, and thank you for all that you do. Also, thank you for just so many wonderful sound bites that are going to very helpful to my team who have to think about the ways in which they promote this podcast. So we have some wonderful sound bites that we can share on social. Unfortunately, that is all the time that we have today, Jeremy, but thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. We very much appreciate you, your insights. And of course, we wish you the best in the coming year. Jeremy Gorman, She's definitely not old. She is definitely awesome. Thanks again for being with us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. This was really fun and I can't wait to, to hear it and have more trifectas of coolness. <laughs> definitely. Thanks All again. Right. Thank you very much. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Business of Marketing, brought to you by Adweek and presented in partnership with SAP. The Business of Marketing is produced by Al Manorino. The executive producer is Brian Leddy. 
Support also provided by Erica Perry and Julian Gamboa. Please take a minute to subscribe and review our show. Your feedback means the world to us. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most. But if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.